a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place for people who are very dedicated about uh, sticking to the truth, finding the truth, sorting their way out of the swamp of misinformation, and figuring out what's what. So I welcome you to uh, the ranks of the wrong thinkers. Thanks so much for joining us. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. And they include Dixie Chiropractic, also HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also GovernYourCrypto.com. Well, I feel like I'm pushing the edge just a little bit today. And if you go to my show notes, if you haven't subscribed, please consider doing so. But you can go to my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. I, I posted a picture today that I know for some people it's going to feel like, whoa, you're getting a little uh, getting a little uppity there, Hyde. But it's the uh, pyramid of intellect, and I happen I happen to agree with this depiction. The pyramid of intellect at its base, you know, so the bottom layer would be those with a high school diploma. Then on top of that, you have the associate's degree. On top of that, the bachelor's degree. On top of that, the master's degree. On top of that, the PhD. You can guess each section gets a little bit smaller and smaller because we're getting toward the top of the pyramid. But when we get to the very top of the pyramid of intellect, what's above a PhD? Well, it says here, people who never took the COVID vaccine, even after all the social pressure. I know that sounds like, well, are you going after the vaccinated, even the people who had to do it in, under duress? No, I'm not. But I do admit that there's a, I have a certain admiration for the folks who resisted all the pressure that was brought to bear from so many different angles. But that's the price you got to be used to, play, to paying, rather. That's uh, the, the suffering you have to be willing to endure if you're going to claim your prerogative as a free individual. So... Yeah, it's a little bit edgy. It's a little salty, but that's okay. I'm grateful such people exist, and even if it's a tiny, tiny minority, that's enough to make a difference. We're going to talk more about that coming up. You know, as, as ugly as the political process is becoming, there is still immense power in the ideas and the ideals of freedom and liberty. In my opinion, this is exactly why you're seeing a push right now for essentially a ministry of truth or some kind of... Uh, check against free speech because if the ideas and the ideals and the, the principles and practices of liberty get out there, it doesn't even take a majority of people embracing and living those principles to make a very noticeable difference. Why? Well, it kind of goes back to what we talked about yesterday with moral clarity. People who have moral clarity are very difficult to manipulate and to otherwise uh, browbeat or intimidate into just, you know, silent obedience, I'll bow my head and do whatever I'm told. So I want to spread those ideas. Got a great article here from uh, Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. Very optimistic. He just flat out says, this is the title, We Can Win. 
And I want you to hear out what he has to say, and I don't want you to get hung up on the fact that he's speaking from the position of a libertarian. Some people, oh, he just wants to smoke pot and throw Frisbees around and let everybody else, you know, be on their own. Listen to what he has to say here. He says there's a reason why totalitarian dictatorships shut down organizations like the Future of Freedom Foundation. They understand the dangers of truth and sound ideas on liberty. They understand that truth and sound ideas on liberty can sweep across a nation and quickly inflame the hearts and minds of individuals to such a point that even the most omnipotent of governments can be brought down. Just as an aside, this is why Canada's government, particularly their Prime Minister Trudeau, responded so negatively to the Freedom Convoy of truckers earlier this year. Because the sound ideas of truth and liberty were beginning to sweep across his country. And so he did everything in his power to smear them as racist and misogynist and anti-government and dangerous terrorists and anything. People, don't look in their direction. Don't even think about what they're saying. They're so dangerous you should have nothing to do with them. Where have I heard that before? Anyway, back back to Jacob Hornberger's article. He says, think about it. A totalitarian regime has total power over its citizenry. It has all the guns. So why should it fear people who are disclosing the truth about the regime and spreading sound ideas on liberty? It's because it understands the power of truth and the power of sound ideas on liberty to transform a society. Now, unfortunately, Jacob Hornberger says many libertarians have given up. They've concluded that the welfare, warfare, state way of life is here to stay. It's just too big that it's become a permanent feature of American life. Thus, they have decided to devote their lives to reform toward improving our our lot in life as serfs by reforming welfare, warfare, state programs, departments, and agencies. Things like saving or privatizing Social Security, health savings accounts, income tax reform, reining in the IRS, school vouchers, uh, drug war reform, regulatory reform, getting libertarian-oriented conservatives appointed to regulatory commissions, getting libertarians elected to school boards, CIA reform, Pentagon reform, surveillance reform, immigration reform, FISA court reform, foreign interventionism reform, 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 reform. Here's the point. Reform is not freedom, not even when it's called freedom. Jacob Hornberger writes, to achieve freedom, it is necessary to dismantle, repeal, or abolish infringements on freedom. Reforming infringements on liberty leaves infringements intact. Now, he's taking a pretty hard line here, but he's not wrong. He says, over the years, reform-oriented libertarians have criticized me for pointing toward the freedom achievements of 19th century Americans. They say that I'm claiming the 19th century was a libertarian panacea, and they don't want the people's attention focused on the positive freedom achievements of of the 19th century. Now, he says... Contrary to my, what my reform-oriented critics have said, I never claimed that the 19th century was a libertarian panacea. In fact, he says, I fully understand. There were some bad things that happened in the 19th century, such as slavery, the Civil War, the violation of women's rights. So, he says, why then do I focus people's attention on the 19th century? And the answer is because that century shows that it is possible to achieve many of the uncompromising principles that the Future of Freedom Foundation has enunciated for 32 years. Reflect on the type of society in which Americans in 1880 lived. 
No income tax or IRS. No Social Security, no Medicare, Medicaid, welfare, education grants, farm subsidies, corporate bailouts, stimulus package, stimulus packages rather, Federal Reserve System, in other words, fiat and paper money. No drug war, no immigration controls, no economic regulations, no minimum wage laws, no price controls, rent controls, occupational licensure, antitrust laws, public schooling programs, in other words, government schooling programs, uh, Pentagon, CIA, NSA, FBI, state-sponsored assassinations, kidnapping, torture, indefinite detention, secret prison camps, foreign alliances, foreign interventions, coups, foreign aid, sanctions, and embargoes. None of that. And he says, that type of society existed. That's indisputable. And so he says, I say, let's start there as a baseline for freedom. Jacob Hornberger writes, 20th century Americans abandoned all of those achievements and chose to adopt instead a socialist welfare state regulated economy system. And later they decided to convert their founding governmental system of a limited government republic to a national security state form of governmental structure, which came with empire, foreign interventionism, and dark side practices that are inherent to totalitarian regimes. That's why our nation is now mired in a statist morass. If 20th century Americans could change their system to something bad, well then he says there's no reason why 21st century Americans can't change their system to something good. All that we need is a critical mass of Americans who wish to restore the sound founding principles of our nation and build on them with the aim of bringing into existence the freest, most prosperous, most peaceful, and most harmonious nation in history. So how do we achieve that critical mass? All right, here's the answer. By adhering strictly to the truth about the welfare warfare state way of life and by spreading sound ideas on liberty. Jacob Hornberger says, by doing that, we find those people who want liberty and who are passionately committed to achieving it, which can then bring us the society for which we yearn. I'm I'm sure that Jacob Hornberger would agree with me on this. That's not going to happen from the top down. So don't uh, hold your breath and wait. Well, as soon as we get the right person in the White House, once we're there, then we can start thinking about, you know, making the right moves here. It starts at the individual level. So if you're not ready to offer society one improved unit, starting with yourself, that's where our work begins. And if that means increasing your understanding of the principles and practices of liberty, well then, so be it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. Once again, I'd like to thank SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com for being one of my sponsors. They are located in St. George, Utah. That's great news for anybody within the sound of my voice in the southern Utah region. And, you know, you you may turn your nose up if you're not into sewing, but I'm telling you, if if you know someone who is serious about sewing or is serious about quilting, especially long-arm quilting, or serious about embroidery or any of the other creative arts involving sewing, really, this is the place to go. Great selection of machines from entry-level machines up to the best of the best of long-arm quilting machines. 
And they can train you how to use your machine once you buy it. They can set you up with all the supplies. They can service your machine once you've purchased it. Basically, this is a very sound investment. And it's a lot of fun. And it creates heritage. It creates memories. So what's not to love? SewingandQuiltingCenter.com All right. It's been interesting watching Twitter evolve from celebrating free speech to becoming literal thought police. In fact, it's been as informative as it has been disturbing to watch that transition. I got an article here from John Sanders. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. This tweet contains speech. Click here to learn more. John Sanders says, Misleading, it says, with an exclamation point inscribed within a red triangle. Learn more about the science behind COVID-19 vaccines and how health officials say they work. Find out more. This tweet can't be replied to, shared, or liked. He says it's the current warning Twitter places on one of the most viewed tweets of all time. An April 4th, 2021 missive from Road to Serfdom 3 account. This is what it said. They're not vaccine passports. They're movement licenses. It's not a vaccine. It's experimental gene therapy. Lockdown at best is at best completely pointless universal medical isolation and at worst ubiquitous public incarceration. Call things what they are, not their euphemisms. End quote. Okay, that's pretty pointed. But apparently Twitter is like, whoa. <laughs> We've got to put a fact check on this and make sure that people know this is misleading. Now, previously, Twitter was telling people, learn why health officials consider COVID-19 vaccines safe for most people. Here's how their current warning reads. Learn how health officials say they work. That's a bit of a rhetorical step down, maybe a subtle acknowledgement of the actual science behind COVID-19 vaccines and not just the science that the Twitter link serves up. Now, John Sanders says Twitter has regressed far from when its CEO boasted to NPR back in 2013, we're the free speech wing of the free speech party. The social media platform grew by leaps and bounds under such robust free speech promises. But in recent years, it began reworking its terms of service to become more and more the thought police gaming room of the thought police party. Twitter's effete content management prigs were not content with outright banning some users for wrong think or saying learn to code. They also resorted to such passive-aggressive measures as, as shadow bans or suspensions without explanation, throttling of likes, ad hoc warning labels, and even hiding tweets behind warning screens. Having grown up in a different era, he says it's weird to go past a warning of sensitive content only to discover it's an MD quoting a medical journal article on ivermectin. So he provides a sample of the warning labels they dreamed up in between sessions of therapeutic coloring at Twitter. Things like, get the facts about COVID-19. This claim about election fraud is disputed. Want to review this before tweeting? We're asking people to review replies with potentially harmful or offensive language. Some or all of the content shared in this tweet conflicts with guidance from public health experts regarding COVID-19. Learn more. This tweet violates our policies regarding the glorification of violence. Now, he says about that last one. In a feat of tetrapyloctomy, glorification of violence was their rationale for banning the account of President Donald Trump. While accounts affiliated with, for example, the Taliban or Iran or China never had a moment's worry. 
subjective censorship, inconsistency with the application of its own policies, and abandoning its former commitment to free speech are all things apparently motivating Elon Musk's decision to purchase Twitter. Now, if Musk does what Twitter's gormless content stiflers fear the most, in the words of a Babylon Bee headline, Twitter workers worried Elon Musk will turn their free speech platform into a platform that allows free speech. What will they do? Will they resort to going door-to-door screaming, Shut up! at people. Or will they be seen on street corners behind crudely drawn signs reading, We'll hide follower counts for food. John Sanders says, I suggest they stay put. In fact, I propose they keep applying labels, only now use them to help guide fellow frustrated censors in this new uncertain land of, of speech freedom. So here are a few of the labels that they might want to adopt. How about this one? Get the facts about free speech. Civil society is better with this attribute attributed to Voltaire. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Or this one. Misleading? Maybe. Maybe not. The free exchange of ideas helps people like you and the speaker reason your way to the truth. Healthy debate sharpens your understanding and leads to better ideas. It also teaches you how to handle disagreements like an adult. <laughs> I'm sorry. These these are really good. Here's another one. Some or all of the content shared in this tweet conflicts with guidance from experts and questions current science. Questioning science is how scientific inquiry starts. Even if it turns out to be wrong, you should be thankful. <laughs> or disinformation alert. The answer to false, misleading, hateful, or just plain wrong speech is not censorship, but better speech. Here's another one. This claim about blank is disputed. But come on, let's not pretend that's unusual. Find one claim out there that isn't disputed by someone. Calm down. I like this one too. Sticks and stones advisory. Depending upon their size and velocity, they can break bones. A tweet, however, is just words on a screen. Toughen up, cupcake. This tweet impacts our degustibus non est disputandum policy. Loosely translated, it means there's no accounting for tastes. That means you don't need to get bent out of shape over a matter of opinion. Chill. Or this label. Want to review your response before tweeting? You don't always need to get in the last word. People like that are annoying. (laughs) Or this tweet falls under our res ipsa loquitur policy. Humanity's fate does not hinge upon whether you rebut something everyone can see. That's ridiculous. The thing speaks for itself. And finally, learn why the First Amendment ad- learn why First Amendment advocates consider freedom of speech specifically to protect really dumb, wrong, or vile speech. Okay, we can't keep it to ourselves. It's because the best test of whether speech is truly free is if you can get away with saying something stupid and offensive. After all, no one's going to have conniptions over you saying something pleasant. Well, other than Merry Christmas. Now, see, I might not object to those kind of warning labels popping up as, you know, content moderation. At least they're truthful, and at least they're leaning into the concept of freedom. John Sanders says, we'll see, we'll see soon enough if Twitter gets restored to its former position as the free speech wing of the free speech party. He says, if so, Twitter users who had grown accustomed to surrendering their critical thinking to warning labels placed on others' tweets may need a period of adjustment. And a new batch of pro-free speech labels just might do the trick. 
I love that he can do this tongue-in-cheek, and I think his point is well taken. And I'm just going to reiterate once again, if, if you're looking for you know, a source of information that isn't jaded, that isn't spun or otherwise worked over in terms of how it's getting information to you, um, good luck. I get asked on a very regular basis, Brian, what sources can I trust? What are, what are some of the news sources I can go to that are going to tell it to me straight? And, you know, the truth of the matter is there's not a single unbiased source that I could name. And that includes myself. I, you know, I'm biased, too. So my advice is go into it with your head up, understanding that every source you access is going to have some kind of bias. And your goal is to become the kind of person who can think clearly and independently and evaluate that information for yourself and come to your own informed conclusion. You've got to be the fact checker. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. Here's a quick shout-out to HSLAmmo.com. That's my friend Spencer Worthington's Ammo Company, located in southern Utah. You can order your ammo just by going to his website. If you're in southern Utah, you could consider just, you know, stopping by and seeing him. Either way, I'm very thankful to have him as a sponsor. He is the creator of high-quality, new, and remanufactured ammunition. And I'm just saying this for the sake of those who understand, you know, the, the importance of having skill at arms. Ammunition is how you turn money into skill. So if that's something that's a priority for you, maybe consider doing some business with HSLAmmo.com. Well, I'm looking around me and I'm seeing more and more people beginning to awaken to the damage done by the COVID response. And not everybody's at the same level of understanding. Not everybody has that same sense of never again, you know, that, that I'm feeling. That's okay. But I would ask you to consider the people who are, are waking up to this and going, man, this is ridiculous. You know, I, I, I'm thinking about a tweet that I saw yesterday from an individual. He and his wife were both let go by the hospital where they work. They're both medical professionals. I believe they, they are both either nurses or um, one's a nurse and one's a doctor. But because they would not get the vaccine, they were let go. And now their hospital is suffering severe shortages. I mean, you know, it, it takes time to train medical personnel. It takes time to, to, to fill those positions. So they received a very, uh, well, a very gentle uh, suggestion, invitation, if you will. Hey, come back and apply for, uh, for a job here. We're hiring. I don't know how you would handle it, but I don't know. I I. I would be very leery about going back to, you know, a company that cast me aside simply because I refused to knuckle under to the pressure to get that uh, that vax, especially given some of the concerns that we're seeing come out about the, the vaccines. So it's tempting for those of us who have resisted and those of us who have, have just put our foot down and said, I'm not going to be pressured into doing something I don't choose to do. When people finally wake up to it, I know it's tempting to want to point your finger in their face and say, I told you so. This is what you get. Don't. Because we are dealing with, we're dealing with a mass amount of people who have been traumatized, some cases broken, by the COVID response. 
And I know it, it goes against, you know, the, our pride, which was wounded. And, you know, it wasn't fun to be called the stupid one for not, you know, going with along with everybody else. Where's your mask? Why, why have you got your vax so far? Be gentle. That's all I'm saying. Got an article here from Kate McCall about rehabilitating the COVID generation. I think this is a, this is a pretty worthwhile, worthwhile article. She says, my husband's place of employment finally removed its masking requirement about a month ago leaving my husband commenting on how strange it was to see everyone barefaced for the first time in more than two years. It was almost as if they'd forgotten some essential piece of clothing. Even more disoriented was one of his young co-workers who graduated from college within the last year. He pointed out that he had never worked a job without a mask. Now, that young man is emblematic of a whole generation who were making the transition from adolescence to young adulthood under the cloud of lockdowns and mandates as well as all the social isolation, psychological disorientation, and fear that accompanied those restrictions. So does the experience of entering adulthood during COVID qualify as trauma, not just personal trauma, but collective? Well, very likely. But Kate McCall says, how exactly will it play out? And what behaviors and attitudes will this experience ingrain in the COVID generation? Well, she says it's impossible to predict with certainty, but... There are a few features of life during the pandemic, particularly the lack of social interaction and the role of technology in propping up daily life, that may permanently stunt those who entered adulthood at that time. One of these areas of stunted growth shows up in the high incidence of mental health issues. Global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased by a massive 25% during the first year of the pandemic. At least that's according to the World Health Organization and what they said in March of this year. Now, contrary to past trends which show a U-shaped curve of well-being over the course of a lifetime with the youngest and oldest groups faring best and a dip for the middle-aged, this increase in mental health problems is most dramatic in young adults ages 18 to 24. That's according to a recent survey from Sapien Labs. The young adult years tend to be a time of social experimentation and grounding. It's a time when most of us either reconsider the beliefs and attitudes we grew up with or make them our own. Kate McCall says it's a time when we grow in self-assurance and the ability to manage or to navigate difficulties, both personal and interpersonal. And all of this typically plays out on the social stage through face-to-face interactions with people in classrooms, workplaces, and recreational settings. But for a whole generation, these experiences have been at best stunted and limited by COVID lockdowns. Tara Thea Garajan, founder of Sapien Labs, states that the emerging generation has arrived at age 18 to 24 and college with one-tenth of the expertise in solving social issues, living together, coexisting in productive ways without conflict. She says that at age 18, now you have the same experience of interacting with people as a 7- or 8-year-old had in the past. Oh no, I had to look at that again. Really? A seven or eight-year-old? And Kate McCall says what makes this deprivation infinitely worse is the illusion that we have encouraged throughout the pandemic that technology can replace real face-to-face social interaction. As the Sapien Lab survey notes, recent global statistics suggest that people with internet access spend on average seven to ten hours per day online which could crowd out in-person interaction that's key to building a strong social self. 
So these vi- these virtual counterparts are just as good the narrative tells us, so don't worry. You can't go to Grandma's birthday party, but you can call her on Zoom. You can't go to school, but that's okay, because we've got this great virtual classroom set up for you. Heaven forbid you go on an in-person date and learn how to communicate with the opposite sex, but there are lots of options for virtual romance, as evidenced, for example, by the sharp rise in pornography consumption during lockdowns. So today's young adults find themselves socially stunted, crippled by depression and anxiety, and addicted to technology. And if you think this phenomenon is is limited to one side of the political aisle or the other, think again. Regardless of our political positions or opinions about the pandemic, we've all been subject to an enormous amount of fear-mongering, social isolation, and increased technology use, a reality that has been especially formative for the young. Technology cannot save us. It's not the solution to social isolation. In fact, it has exacerbated the problem. So how will these trends play out over the next 20, 40, or even 60 years? Well, it's hard to tell. But the behavior of our grandparents may give us a clue. Kate McCall reminds us that many of our grandparents experienced the Great Depression and the rationing and shortages of World War II as children, and those experiences still influence their behavior. She says, all my life, my husband's grandmother saved Cool Whip containers for a rainy day, and my grandfather plants an annual vegetable garden large enough to feed a small army, despite being financially stable. They're not alone. An entire generation shares similar attitudes and habits born out of a level of deprivation subsequent generations have never known. And so will it likely be with the COVID generation. Only this time, the deprivation is psychosocial, not necessarily financial. How does one make up for lost socialization and the sorrows of isolation? Well, Kate McCall says, it's time to be brave again. We've removed the masks. Now it's time to put down the cell phone, step out into the real world, and talk to someone face-to-face. Well, that seems like pretty sound advice. And, and you may be thinking, now, Brian, you know, by the very fact I'm, I'm a wrong thinker and I'm listening to this show, that means that I'm probably not one of those people who is suffering from the social isolation or the technology dependence or anything, the fear-mongering. But that's not true. That's not true for any of us. All of us have suffered to some degree. And I think psychologically, probably, that's, that's where some of the deepest damage has been done. I'm including myself in that as well. I haven't skated on this and, well, you know, you, you wimps. <laughs> yeah, you, you wish you could be resilient like me. No, I just want you to know, I struggle as well. But the one thing I'm going to ask you to do is please be gentle with the people whose eyes are coming open for the first time. Even if they mistreated you, even if they were the ones who were most insistent, where's your mask and why aren't you doing this? And, you know, if they were the ones who were riding your tail and trying to get you to do something you didn't want to do, be gentle with them. We've all been on the wrong side of the equation before. We've all had that moment, that epiphany where we just went, ooh, now I realize there really is a problem. Now, the benefit of being gentle isn't, uh, you know, so much that, uh, well, they're just going to come over and embrace you. And with their tears, you know, they will thank you for, for being an influence in their life. The point is we need to help as many people toward the light as possible. And that never happens in a good way when we're operating from anger or vindictiveness. I speak from experience. Learn from my mistakes. 
Be gentle with them. Be gentle with yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Want to mention Dixie Chiropractic? That's Dr. Ward Wagner. You can go to DixieChiro.com to learn more. And I'm happy to tell you, I'm actually hearing back from listeners who have gone to see Dr. Wagner and said, hey, this, this was a great suggestion. So thank you for acting on the message you heard here. And remember, if you're dealing with car accident injuries or bulging herniated discs or neuropathy, these are the folks who can help you. DixieChiro.com. Ask about the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage used for, for treating problems with neuropathy. Ask about the $99 intro special of two treatments plus massage for those suffering hernia, herniated discs or bulging discs. Again, all the info, information's at DixieCairo.com. Well, there's no nice way to say this, but uh, I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. Our government seems really intent to start World War III by participating in, by fueling Ukraine's conflict with Russia, by taunting Russia and telling them, hey, you know, we're the reason that Ukraine was able to uh, kill your generals or to sink this ship. And um, Look, what's going on between Ukraine and Russia, that is one conflict, but, but I can't get my mind around the idea. Why do U.S. officials want to be a part of this? They've started actually using the term proxy war themselves. And I know we're supposed to hate all things Russian, and just by doubting what uh, what our own government is saying, that's going to get me pegged as a Russian asset. Well, call me whatever makes you feel better, but I just have this really sickening feeling that uh, the the hubris that that infects the minds and the hearts of of uh, some of the the truly monstrous individuals that are part of the power structure in Washington D.C is such that they really don't mind. If they have to burn the whole house down with us in it in order to to get their way or in order to keep from losing their grip on power, I think they're going to do it. Got a great article here from Monica Showalter. Slouching towards war with Russia, Biden's drift is getting dangerous. She says, Joe Biden, the man who's been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades, as former Defense Secretary Bob Gates wrote, has nebulously put the U.S. on a path to war with Russia, not because he wants to, but because he doesn't know what he's doing. That's the consensus of foreign policy experts as diverse as Thomas Friedman, golf buddy to President Obama, and Mark Walk, the former decorated, the decorated former FBI official from pre-Wokedom era. According to Friedman, writing on May 6th, if you've followed news reports on Ukraine, you might think that the war has settled into a long, grinding, and somewhat boring slog. You would be wrong. Things are actually getting more dangerous by the day. For starters, the longer this war goes on, the more opportunity for catastrophic miscalculations. And the raw material for that is piling up fast and furious. Take the two high-profile leaks from American officials this past week about U.S. involvement in the Russia-Ukraine war. Now, Friedman cites the leaks from supposed U.S. officials declaring that the U.S. had given Ukraine intelligence to enable it to target and kill Russian generals, and that the U.S. had given targeting information to Ukraine to help it sink the Moskva, Russia's black Black Sea flagship naval ship. 
Here's a quote from Friedman's article. As a journalist, I love a good leak story, and the reporters who broke those stories did powerful digging. At the same time, from everything I've been able to glean from senior U.S. officials who spoke to me on condition of anonymity, the leaks were not part of any thought-out strategy, and President Biden was livid about them. I'm told that he called the Director of National Intelligence, the Director of the CIA, and the Secretary of Defense to make clear in the strongest and most colorful language that this kind of loose talk is reckless and has got to stop immediately before we end up in an unintended war with Russia. The staggering takeaway from these leaks is that they suggest we are no longer in an indirect war with Russia, but rather are edging toward a direct war, and no one has prepared the American people or Congress for that. Now, Walk, too, commenting on the leaks, had this to say, quote, These braggadocious claims seem to many, including myself, to be remarkably reckless and provocative. That, in turn, has led some to speculate that the Zhu administration is actually seeking to provoke open war with Russia for domestic political reasons, the midterm elections, imposition of authoritarian control over dissent, etc. Now, however, identifiable Pentagon officials, people with names like John Kirby, are walking back the claims of the anonymous senior American officials and U.S. officials. This leads to speculation that there is little less disturbing than the idea that elements within the U.S. government carefully concealed behind deliberately vague sourcing statements are, in fact, attempting to walk the U.S. up to the brink of war, but that other elements prominently in the Pentagon are resisting rushing to war. We have repeatedly pointed to this dynamic throughout the course of Russia's special operation in Ukraine, that the U.S. government is so divided on the core issue of war or peace with a nuclear power is disturbing in and of itself. That one faction in the government is attempting to go over the heads of the Pentagon on the issue of a war of choice adds to the concern. The fact that the sources are identified so vaguely is further cause for concern, since it suggests a lack of military expertise. That this semi-public debate is taking place with essentially no significant input from the one constitutional institution of the American Republic which has the authority to declare a war, the legislative branch, or... Meaningful public debate should raise our concerns to the level of alarm, end quote. Now, both of them have pointed out that Biden really doesn't know what he's doing. Friedman says boasting about killing generals and sinking his ships or falling in love with Ukraine in ways that will get us enmeshed there forever is the height of folly. And Walk says this leads to speculation that there, there, that is little less disturbing than the idea that elements within the U.S. government carefully concealed behind deliberately vague sourcing statements are, in fact, attempting the U.S. to walk the U.S. up to the brink of war, but that other elements prominently in the Pentagon are resisting rushing to war. Well, now we see the next card come down. Biden signing a new bill to enable arms sales to Ukraine on easier, streamlined terms. According to the Washington Post, the Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act of 2022 revives this pivotal program waiving time-consuming requirements on the president's authority to send critical defensive resources to Ukraine. It's important to note that it's about time. Time is very important when lives are at stake. Now, just refresh my memory, but it seems like the last time we did Lend-Lease, wasn't that with Britain, just prior to our entry into World War II? Just checking. I'm just saying there's something a little familiar about this. So Monica Showalter says there may be wag, do wag the dog reasons for these decisions, but just as likely the Bidenites are allowing themselves to be jerked around by various sources from defense contractors eager for big contracts. 
to Trump haters of the uh, Representative Adam Schiff variety eager to prove that President Trump was the bad guy on Ukraine, to the understandably compassionate Ukrainian-American emigre lobby, to lazy cheapskate Europeans happy to get the U.S. to do Europe's fighting and secure its energy supply. Biden is being jerked from all directions and he doesn't know what he's doing. But each day seems to be showing U.S. involvement in the Ukraine conflict getting closer and closer while there's absolutely no public debate about it. We may find ourselves suctioned into a war with Russia, with Ukraine the proxy element, and end up footing the bill for the problem. And what's worse, we may well be exposing ourselves to Russian cyber attacks and Russian oil cutoffs, not just of Russian supply, but the supplies of its proxies and allies. Venezuela, for example, made it very clear to the Bidenites that its loyalty to patron Russia is paramount. So don't expect Venezuela to be supplying the U.S. with oil. It won't produce itself. Russia itself has warned of consequences to the U.S. for doling out Ukrainian military aid. And Biden has signed off on this measure, which comes on top of all the aid packages he's approved, plus the leaks about killing generals and sinking battleships, and all one can wonder is what's next. Will this be the end of it, or will there be more and more to come? See, Biden's facing a shellacking come November, so it wouldn't be surprising if he leans toward getting us into a war in order to see the voters rally around the flag and the president. But on the other hand, this isn't some little third-world hellhole dictatorship. This is nuclear-armed Russia, which is a bit more than a farm than with nukes. So Biden may well be biting off more than he can chew making himself the equivalent of Kaiser Wilhelm II in rank stupidity. And, of course, the consequences will be on us. I don't know if you've been following this in the news, but um, the, the largest baby formula manufacturing plant in America has been shut down for the last three months by the FDA. Now, my understanding is no explanation has been given. I'm sure there's something official. It's why they did that, but... You can't find baby formula on many store shelves throughout the country. And yet uh, Congress just approved a $40 billion aid package to send military aid to Ukraine. Babies in the U.S. are going hungry. Parents are beginning to get nervous because they can't find baby formula. But the taxpayers are always good for a few tens of billions more to prop up the defense industry, to prop up, you know, the the foreign policy aims of the U.S. government. Yeah, something about that stinks to high heaven. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I know, I'm always a little bit nervous as uh, another hour of the show starts. And, And my nervousness is based on this. I want to share the best information that I have with you in the effort to uh, persuade you to think as clearly and independently as possible. I'm, I'm serious when I say I want people to question everything. 
and and not act like, you know, truth is something that someone in authority is going to hand to us like we're good little kids. Here you go. Have some truth. Now run along and play with it. No, I think if you're serious about knowing what's going on in the world, you've got to be willing, first of all, to face some some unpleasant truths, but also to do your own digging and do your own education, if you will, on, on a particular matter. Well, I'm here to help facilitate that, but that doesn't mean you can you can trust everything I say. I'll do my best not to mislead you, but clearly, I don't have all the answers. I just I appreciate you giving me a chance to share with you some thoughts that hopefully provide a slightly different vantage point or just a little bit broader perspective than what you had before. So, with that in mind, how'd you like a little down and dirty recap of all the things that are going on with just a little touch of humor? I mean, if you prefer your news straight up with no sugar coating, well, James Howard Kunzler is the guy I would go to because he uh, he delivers. He gets right to the point. And his question is, got the heebie-jeebies? So here's, here's his uh, assessment of what is in front of us. Okay, keep up. This moves pretty quick. He says, there are roughly six months of nice weather to get through, meaning conditions that are favorable for action in the street starring the shock troops of progressive wokery. He says, everyone I know is walking around in a baseline state of nervous agitation. Are they beset by disinformation, or rather, is it the reality of a cratering nation run by idiots and maniacs? Everywhere you look, calamities gather speed while the klaxons of alarm blare from all compass points. Got money? Well, looks like soon it will be worthless. Wondering if Mr. Putin has had enough of Joe Biden's brainless effrontery to lob some hypersonic big ones in our collective face? Relying on that retirement account you have no direct control over while the financial markets wobble? Need to fill up the gas tank of your pickup truck twice a week? Can't find a new condenser to fix the failing fridge? Entertaining rumors of looming famine? Credit cards maxed out? Sheriff stapling an eviction notice on your door? Beloved younger brother declaring that henceforward they are your sister? Hearing that all those vaxes and boosters you obediently submitted to might rearrange your DNA? Well, he says, these are just a few of the concerns zinging through the zeitgeist these late days of the Republic. And you're correct to be anxious about them. So at least don't worry about worrying. Just understand that the more events spool out in the direction of danger, the more you will be warned against disinformation. Now, the good part is that we now know the identity of at least one person who's officially in charge of that. Disinformation expert Nina Jankowitz, or as he calls her, Nijank, new chief of Washington's Disinformation Governance Board. Whose idea was that, by the way? Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, Alme, didn't seem to know anything pertaining to disinformation last week when grilled in committee by Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky including two of the most notorious cases in recent memory. Did the Steele dossier include Russian disinformation? Almay said, well, he was not equipped to answer that question. Ditto the question, now definitively settled, as to whether Hunter Biden's laptop, stuffed with grifting memoranda, was for real. Of course, both of those matters were labeled previously as disinformation by this new, by his new, hire, new expert hire, Nijank, who it appears is similarly unequipped to discuss the particulars at issue. But all this does raise the parallel issue, and that is how much depraved insolence is the public supposed to tolerate from its public servants? Well, James Howard Kunzler says, My guess, we are nearing the end of of America's Christian patience for being snookered, gaslit, lied to, bamboozled, and mind-screwed. 
especially as our nation gets gang-raped by the party of chaos. He says perhaps the solution is to go a little further down the Roe v. Wade path and make abortion fully retroactive. A new and innovative way to cancel lives whose obnoxious presence in the world is a menace to the human project. Declare the likes of Al May and Nijank retroactively unborn, erasing their privilege to appointed office. He says the wire coat hanger will probably not avail in this procedure. Of course, it's all just a hypothetical at this point. Meanwhile, several Supreme Court justices are under siege in direct contravention of 18 U.S. Code subsection 115, influencing, impeding, or retaliating against a federal official by threatening or injuring a family member. The authorities are permitting angry mobs to moil freely outside the justices' houses, while many January 6th insurrectionists rot in the D.C. jail a second year on misdemeanor charges that the authorities refuse to adjudicate, meaning that there is no authority in Washington, D.C., only a nameless, lawless simacrum of it as conceived, say, in the spirit of Franz Kafka. James Howard Kunstler says, Hope abides that the November elections might set up a correction to much of this madness. The release on Saturday of Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, 2,000 Mules, does not provide a whole lot of encouragement about that. The party of chaos still has its apparatus of uh, ballot fraud in place all over the country, and nobody, nobody seems to know what to do about it, even though the remedy is pretty straightforward and simple, just invert in-person voting with voter ID. Now, the evidence of Dropbox video and smartphone tracking of the 2020 ballot stuffers in several states is right there. And nobody in American life appears to be equipped to do something about it. The necessary equipment consists of two plum-sized glands generally assigned at birth to persons of the male persuasion. Perhaps along with refrigerator condensers, the the supply line for that is broken. But of course, first, before the scheduled midterm elections, there are roughly six months of nice weather to get through meaning conditions that are favorable for action in the street, starring the shock troops of progressive wokery. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, depending on where you live, maybe that's another reason to feel those old heebie-jeebies creeping in on little spider's feet. Now, I understand some people might take what he's saying here as, wow, that's, uh, that's like some, some straight-up fear. And I suppose it could provoke a fearful reaction in many. For me, it's just kind of like, well, I don't see anything he's reporting on here that... Uh, that uh, sounds outrageous or just there's no possible way that could be true. And yeah, it's not, it's not the most pleasant news, but it's something I'd rather face and, you know, do what I can to mitigate whatever risks are involved. I'm particularly interested in the 2000 Mules film. I've only watched it about halfway through. I hope to get finished maybe a little bit later today. I'll, I'll be able to sit down and watch the rest of it. But what I have seen thus far it uh, it seems to make a pretty solid case that uh, there was some definite hanky-panky to the tune of hundreds of thousands of votes that just seemed to magically appear. And I'm not saying it's the definitive proof. I'm just saying it raises enough questions or it, it gives credibility to the questions that people have already had about that 2020 election and is it, do you think it's a coincidence that, uh, you know, right as that film comes out, we also see the unveiling of, you know, this uh, ministry of, of disinformation, the ministry of truth, to make sure we don't get too far, out, too far away from the official narrative? Yeah. 
I think I think there's a story here, and the fact that to, nobody in polite society is supposed to even acknowledge that there could be questions. But it sure does seem like uh, seems like those questions are well placed. And don't construe this as well. So what are you saying? We ought to you know take Joe Biden out of office and put Trump in his place? Actually, I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is that uh, the people who insist that this was the most honest and straightforward election in American history, they're liars. And they know they're lying. And I'm, I'm sure the reason they don't want us to look too closely at these kind of things is because it may give us a reason to doubt what they're trying to tell us. But I think there's good reason we should doubt them. I think there's excellent reason, in fact, and that's why we should be asking these kinds of questions, no matter who it makes upset. Oh, and they, trust me, they will start to throw around words like sedition. That is a seditious conspiracy that you're you're spreading and you're doing this for the purpose of undermining people's confidence. And, you know, again, at the, at the risk of sounding like a, like a real jerk, but maybe people's confidence should be undermined. Or at least if people were to look and realize this is what people in power are trying to do to me or to my children, and I don't know, I don't agree with this, or I don't want to go along with it. Maybe you should consider withdrawing your consent. Maybe you should consider doubting what those experts and those officials are telling you. Now, if that makes me a subversive, hey, I gratefully accept the label. But the thing I cannot accept is people in power abusing authority, usurping authority that was never theirs to begin with, and doing everything in their power to dismantle what remains of our freedoms. So if that means asking questions that make them uncomfortable, yeah, we got to be willing to do that. And the 2000 election, or I'm sorry, the 2020 election, absolutely not off limits. We should be talking about it more. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is one of my sponsors and has been long term. I so appreciate Heather as well as all she does for those who are in the market for a mortgage. And if you're listening to this message anywhere in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, Heather is there along with her team at Patriot Home Mortgage to help you get the mortgage you need when time is of the essence. A couple of different ways you can contact her if you're in St. George. You can actually drive right to her office at 619 South Bluff Street. You can pick up the phone and call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So it's probably no secret, but uh, we know there are people out there who thrive on being scolds and busybodies. Got a great article here from the uh, Z-Man saying, Busybodies beware. Your tools to uh, target other people for censorship may be about to be taken away. The Z-Man says, lost in the hysterical drama over Elon Musk buying Twitter is the fact that Twitter and the Internet in general were doing fine up until recently. Up until somewhere in the Obama years, no one was concerned about Internet culture. In fact, if anything, people lauded the open culture of the Internet as an antidote to the limits of real life. The Internet was going to be a better public square than the old public square. Now, the Z-Man says many of the people weeping over Musk promising to reopen the platform originally embraced Twitter, 
so they could break free from the limits placed on public discourse by corporate media. But most of the complaining, however, is coming from the sorts of people the Internet used to exclude. Online culture used to be a haven from the scolds and busybodies who haunt daily life. The fact is, social media is not a new thing. It's just a new label. From the earliest days of the Internet, there have been public platforms. In the days when only smart people were online, this was the BBS. A sort of crude digital bulletin board. Imagine a character-based 4chan and you have the idea. Then it was Usenet, the message boards that provided platforms for online communities. It was only in the past decade that what we think of as social media came online and made it easy for the left side of the bell curve, curve rather, to join the fun. And this is when the sorts of people who seek to regulate speech came barging into Internet culture, telling everyone the Internet was broken. It's the technologically inept latecomers who have made these Internet platforms into ideological war zones. Now, sure, in the golden age of the Internet, Nazi guy was there to torment progressive gal, and own the libs guy was there as well. In reality, progressive gal was a mostly silent minority online. So Nazi guy and own the libs did not have the convenient foils that make their Internet persona possible. And it turns out that Nazi guy and own the libs guy grow only in the salty tears of progressive gal online. Now, the Z-Man says this is where Musk can not only fix Twitter, but set an example for other platforms when it comes to managing the scolds and the busybodies. Fixing online culture is primarily about who, not how. And a lesson from the early days of online communities is that the rules need to be about selecting against the scolds and busybodies. Make the platform less appealing to them, and you quickly reduce their numbers and their victims. Now, this is a lesson from the meat space. I guess that would be real life. In daily life, no one likes the woman who's always creating drama. People organize their lives to limit their exposure to that person and anyone who enjoys her drama. Further, the guy who keeps talking about Hitler or how much he hates the left gets ignored. They keep this stuff to themselves so they can be included in the community. In other words, social pressure works. That would be the first way for Musk and the rest of the platform or the public platforms to discourage the sorts of behavior that are are at the root of the problem. Removing all of the mechanism to report other users takes away the appeal to the scolds and busybodies. If they're stripped of their ability to rat out fellow users, most of the fun of the platform goes away for them, as well as the people who enjoy taunting them. Similarly, downvoting is a powerful weapon against troublemakers because no one likes to be told they're the problem. It's why booing at public events remains popular. It works, and the downvote works the same way. The reason YouTube removed downvoting is they hated being booed by their own user base. Social pressure is the best way to compel conformity in a community, digital or analog. Now, message board communities figured this out long ago. These systems give users reputation scores based on the up and down votes. Inevitably, Nazi guy and progressive gal destroy each other's reputation so that everyone else can conveniently ignore them. In other words, the people who are always the problem are allowed to marginalize themselves. Twitter could easily do the same. Another lesson from the golden age of the Internet is that the sorts of people who want to be moderators are the people who should never be moderators. It is the scolds and busybodies who lust for these positions. The Trust and Safety Committee of Twitter is composed of the worst, most petty despots humanity can produce. And the Z-Man says the, the platform would improve greatly 
if Musk just threw these people off the roof of the building. A little harsh there, but not exactly wrong either. Z-Man says a $50, I'm sorry, a $50 billion tech company should be able to replace these harpies with software to enforce a minimal number of clear rules. A searchable database of banned words and topics would make the rules clear, and the software engineers should have little difficulty coding those into the regulatory system. The culture inside the company improves because the scolds and busybodies have been removed. Now, there are other things that can be done, like allowing people to buy extra privileges on the platform, but the goal should always be to select against the scolds and busybodies who make life miserable for everyone. A reorienting of the moral hierarchy that places these people at the bottom rather than the top not only fixes Twitter, but also sets a positive example for the rest of the public platforms. And he says it could also spill into the real world when groups like the uh, America, the uh, Anti-Defamation, Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center can no longer weaponize these weirdos and misfits to harass people online. Their position as the tone police quickly erodes. And when these sorts of people are remarginalized online, they will start to be remarginalized in real life. Public discourse needs to be fumigated to remove these vermin from the public square. Now, the Z-Man wraps it up by saying the fight to preserve speech online is a microcosm of the larger war to rescue civic life from the worst people in society. As we see with Twitter, when you empower maladapted weirdos, they quickly invert the social hierarchy, placing the deviants at the top and normal people at the bottom. This inverted moral universe inside Twitter is what's killing it, but it's also what is killing civic life in general. And he says Musk has a chance to set the tone by reversing this and maybe restore some decency to public life. That's pretty straight up, wouldn't you say? Again, this is a commentary from the Z-Man, published on tackymag.com. I've got a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com and would encourage you not only uh, take a click on the link, but uh, maybe consider subscribing to my show notes on a daily basis. Just scroll to the bottom of any show notes page and you'll see the big subscribe button. Put in your email address and I will send a copy out every day that I do the show. Yeah, I don't know what it is about the, the busybodies, but I'm I'm with the Z-Man on this one. That is, uh, we really need to take away those tools for censorship. You know, I, I hear people say, well, you know, there's no such thing as free speech absolutism. You know, you really shouldn't be a free speech absolutist. But so far, I haven't been successfully persuaded that there's a better way than to, to embrace free speech with its, with its beauty as well as its ugliness. I just think that's the, that's the situation where we are more likely to get a better shot at the truth. But rather than have somebody else, you know, outsource it to the government or somebody, even, even you know, somebody that you trust in your church or in school or whatever. Hey, would you please look at all this information and then you just tell me what's okay to believe or what it's okay to think? Don't do it. Your mind is too important to outsource that responsibility to other people. And I know what I'm suggesting is a harder way. It's, it's more of an uphill walk. But you and I have got to become the fact checkers of our own reality. We've got to be willing to pay the price to really dig in and research a topic if we want to know about it. And then make the determination, does this line up with reality or not? You can't let somebody else make that decision for you. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I'm a big believer that a little bit of food storage goes a long way in helping promote peace of mind. And I think this is something a lot of people are going to understand at some point. My biggest concern is that they're going to understand it when they go to the grocery store and they see empty shelves and realize, whoa, we don't know when the next shipment is coming in. And that's when they're going to have a real, uh, well, memorable encounter with reality. I'm not saying that if you just put away enough food, why everything bad in the world will pass you by and you'll never be, you know, you'll, you'll be unscathed in every instance. I don't know that. What I do know is there is a lot of unpredictability, and right now there are a lot of things that are wobbling pretty hard, so that unpredictability, unpredictability could be greatly increased. It would make sense to have something to improve your position, your standing, and lifesavingfood.com is there to help you make that happen. Big or small food, food storage packages, survival supplies, preparedness supplies, it's all there in one place. I want to take advantage of that. Well, there can be no doubt right now that we are in a fight for our freedoms and for our way of life. Alan Stevo asks the question, do you want to matter more in this fight? And he has some very solid ideas about what that looks like. He says, these are some of the things I often hear. Nothing is working. But he says, that's simply not true. Or, we are totally losing. But he says, that's another misnomer. Here's a good one. All the news is so depressing. Well, he says, if you surround yourself with depressing news sources that play on your emotion to garner clicks, then yes, of course, all the news is depressing. Now, Alan Stevel says, I spent a big part of my time driving up and down lockdown land, helping small groups of activists advance their efforts. And he says, I know some things are working because I see them firsthand. He says, in the model of a despicable yet successful south side of Chicago community organizer from just one state Senate district north of where I grew up, Barack Obama, he says, I too am a community organizer. That means two things. I play smash mouth and I do things that work. Now, as far as Obama goes, he says his methods work, but his values suck. Alan Stevo says, I've seen the ugliest of political battles that have gotten involved in a few every year for many years. And that's been an important part of my life since I was first taken campaigning at the age of seven in the rough and tumble political environment I grew up in. Some people have no taste for playing smash mouth politics. They are not the right people for me. He says, when a horde is descending upon everything you hold dear... You better figure out how to fight back with everything you have. That's the sort that's sort of the Chicago way. So he says, you can imagine that I'm open to protecting my values by playing Smash Mouth. Now that leaves plenty of libertarians and conservatives butthurt that I would dare be so unsavory. But truthfully, he says, playing Smash Mouth is merely leveling the playing field. It's hardly fighting back with everything you can. In the period that we're in, we're transitioning out of corona communism and into the new normal. And he says, we have a chance right now for accountability, or we have a chance right now to acquiesce. Now, accountability is one way to leverage the moment and to help save the day, but it will not always be an opportunity open to us, but right now it is. 
and it can be such an effective tool. The moment needs you to demand accountability in the world around you, and for those who need a little extra help, he says, I'm going to make myself available. In fact, he announces that he's launching a project, working name Project Accountability, but it will only be open to paying members on his website. And he says, in bite-sized pieces, I will break down what other successful activists are doing to make accountability possible in the world around them and to help you do the same. Now, why should you care? Well, I'm going to just put this out there. Alan Stevo has been one to really walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And I'd be very curious to see what he has in mind. He says he's been laying the groundwork for this for the last six months as he's probed government records in very specific counties to see how lax local officials were with the, with the law. And often they were very lax and they left a clear paper trail of their crimes. Now, Alan Stevo says, as much as I love the principles within the Constitution, every time someone brings up the topic of the Constitution as a way to get even, I sigh in mild annoyance. We've turned the thing into a mere piece of paper by not fighting the concrete fights for accountability that I'm talking about. And he says that fight is not for everybody, but it is for some people. The people who will do the things that work in their local community. These are the people who will be remembered by those around them as heroes of this era. They weren't just talk. They did the hard work that forced no other option from government to be possible. So it's not frou-frou, pie-in-the-sky ideas such as the Nuremberg Laws or the Constitution that I'm saying have been broken. He says, when I'm talking accountability, I'm talking about state criminal laws that were broken. When that's the territory you're dealing with, state criminal laws, suddenly you are far more concrete and local than any other legal battle. It's a battle for accountability that he says, I believe you can concretely, single-handedly be victorious in. Now, he says, I respect the common law folks, but this is not that. I respect the affidavit folks, but this is not that. I respect the folks who lobby, but this is not that. I respect the militia and the secessionists, but this is not that. I respect the Second Amendment folks, but this is not that. I love a lot about the Constitution, but I'm not going to mention much about it through any of this. Again, because of people refusing to do basic work like this, Alan Stevo says we have turned the Constitution into a piece of paper. If we do our work right, we can make that piece of paper back into the meaningful document it once was. So he's identified the laws that were broken. He's interviewed prosecutors and law enforcement as well. He's spoken to plenty of journalists. And at this point, he says, I'm convinced that in any county in which we scratch the surface, we will find a plethora of criminal laws broken. So he includes a link, and actually there's a time-specific offer. The time's probably going to be up by the time you hear this. But he says, if you want to matter more in this fight that we're in, you've got to do the things that work. That means focusing as close to home as possible, spending as little time on depressing stories as possible, be entrepreneurial in your approach to life. There are many problems that need solving and simply need a go-getter to step up and do that. He also says to be staunch in your values by identifying your boundaries, communicating your boundaries, and defending your boundaries. And Alan Stevo says, as you encounter people doing the same or even just thinking the same, get their contact info. Do not let them out of your sight without getting their phone number. Stay in touch, meet regularly, grow into friends. One or two people at a time, you will rebuild the community of decent people around you. 
Done diligently, it may even be one or two hundred before you know it. All the rest of the people matter little. It is your remnant that matters. And as you do this, you'll combat the pressure modernity places on you to dissolve that community of like-minded people. You will be rebuilding the future of this country and the future of humanity immediately around you. Now, he says, in that process, if you want a helping hand, I'm your man. And I'm rebuilding the world around me. But he says, I'm not going to forget about 2020 until there has been accountability. Because I recognize that in the immediate past, there is such a powerful opportunity to leverage into a vastly more free future. Now, he says, you don't need me to make that happen in your life, but I'm a fantastic ally to have walking through that process alongside of you. So if you want to join me, he says, now you know how. You can sign up for his email. There's a link right there at the end of the article. Building the community of decent people around you. Building that little remnant. I think that's really wise. And and above all, it will give you the, the moral courage to continue to stand. I think this is one of the hardest things for people who I see who are making a stand is they feel so utterly isolated. And if just one or two people will stand up with them or will, you know, voice, you know, affirmation for what they're doing. Oh, you cannot believe the, the boost that it gives their morale, the, uh, the authority that it gives them in terms of a vote of confidence. And I'm talking moral authority. We all need that from time to time. So the question I have for you now is, what are you doing to build that remnant around you? I was going to use the word tribes, but I, I'm kind of, I'm soured on tribalism because that really seems like what identity politics is all about. But, um, you know, building your tribe, or at least building that, that remnant of people who really are decent and who understand and, and are willing to stand up and be counted, that's pretty important. Not just in terms of, you know, flexing a little political muscle here and there, but in terms of if if times were difficult, what kind of people would you want to count on? What kind of people would you want to be able to turn to or to have within your circle of influence? I, I know what my answer would be. All right, check the show notes. You'll find this link to Alan Stevo's article, Do You Want to Matter More in This Fight? By the way, pay close attention. I believe God sends people into our lives. Our orbits coincide at exactly the right moment because I believe there's some divine providence that's at play. Pay attention to that. Recognize it when you see it and give thanks to God when it happens. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for joining us here on the program. Look, I'm nobody special. I don't have any magic formulas to solve all the problems in your life. I don't have all the answers to life's questions. I'm not rich, handsome, good-looking, tall. <laughs> my success hasn't gone to my clothes. I don't have, I don't have marvelous credentials. I'm just a person who strongly believes that we have, uh, we've got to be true to what we know is true. And so in, in the interest of that, I am encouraging you to do your part to step up and be counted 
And uh, part of that is just simply understanding the world around us and uh, knowing that that we can we can handle whatever it throws at us. So I wanted to, to share an article here from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. I mean, we have a lot of challenges at hand. And now it's starting to look like among the challenges we could be facing in the near future, like as of this summer, power shortages. John Miltimore has a great take on the limits of green energy. This was published on the Foundation for Economic Education originally. Subtitle here, evidence shows America's power grid is increasingly unreliable and struggling to keep up with energy demand. Miltimore says, with more than 25 years of executive experience in the utility industry, people tend to listen when MISO CEO John Baer talks about energy. And the message he's sending about electricity shortages as Americans head into summer is clear. I am concerned about it, Bear told the Wall Street Journal in an article exploring why power grid operators are worried that electricity supplies may struggle to keep up with rising energy demands. Now, John Miltimore says Bear is not some lone prophet foretelling doom. From California to Texas to the Midwest, the journal spoke to grid operators warning that conditions are ripe for outages as plants pivot to renew to new renewable energy sources. Now, These concerns are not unfounded. Evidence shows America's power grid is increasingly unreliable and struggling to keep up with demand. And operators are bracing for rolling blackouts that could be arriving as soon as this year during heat waves and cold snaps. Now, you've probably heard politicians and policy wonks speak of quitting fossil fuels as if they're a filthy habit or a narcotic like crack. But John Miltimore says the reality is humans could not survive without coal, natural gas, and oil. Despite their impressive growth, renewable energy sources, solar, wind, hydro, and biomass combined account for just 20% of U.S. utility-scale electricity generation. Fossil fuels, on the other hand, provide 61% of utility-scale electricity generation in the country. That's what cools and heats our homes. That's what runs our appliances. That's what feed the Teslas that we drive. And Miltimore says, while there's a great deal of excitement around the potential of renewable energy, one simply cannot replace a coal plant with a wind or solar farm and expect things will go just fine. These are intermittent energy sources, for one. But their construction and expansion also has been hit with delays for a variety of reasons, including inflation and supply chain bottlenecks. Brad Jones is interim chief executive of the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. He told the Wall Street Journal, every market around the world is trying to deal with the same issue. We're all trying to find ways to utilize as much of our renewable resources as possible, and at the same time, make sure that we have enough dispatchable generation to manage reliability. So Miltimore says the shift from filthy coal to clean energy has not always been smooth. Last year, for example, Hawaiian officials were stunned to learn that the coal plant they had killed had been replaced with a massive battery powered by oil, which one official described as from going, to, going from cigarettes to crack. Now, it's true that fossil fuels come with trade-offs. John Miltimore says they can be messy, They emit greenhouse gases, but the idea that green energies do not come with similar environmental trade-offs is simply not true. So that electric car your neighbor just bought probably isn't as green as he thinks. 
It takes tens of thousands of pounds of CO2 emissions to produce those fancy Tesla batteries, research shows. Jason Hickel, an economic anthropologist, argues that renewable energy has the potential to be just as destructive to the environment as fossil fuels. And while the phrase clean energy might conjure up images of beaming sunshine and rainbows and gales of wind, the reality is far different. Writing in Foreign Policy, Hickel noted the transition to renewable energy sources exacts a serious toll on the environment. It requires massive amounts of energy, not to mention the extraction of minerals and metals at great environmental and societal costs. A little-noticed World Bank study examined just the amount of material it would take to get to a zero-emission economy. And the results are staggering, Hickel noted, extrapolating using some basic arithmetic. 34 million metric tons of copper, 40 million tons of lead, 50 million tons of zinc, 162 million tons of aluminum, and no less than 4.8 billion tons of iron. Wow. So it's easy, of course, not to think about such matters. Just like it's easy not to think about the fact that there's a good chance the lithium-ion battery powering your EV was made with cobalt mined by a child in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the vast majority of the world's cobalt is mined. John Miltimore says these are unpleasant realities, but they are realities nevertheless, and they remind us of an important economic adage popularized by economist Thomas Sowell. There are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. In economics, this idea is sometimes expressed as opportunity cost. It's the idea that you must sacrifice something to obtain a product or service or experience, even if it's simply your time or attention. So when it comes to fossil fuels, many Americans tend to ignore their benefits and focus on their costs. When it comes to green energy, however, many of the same people do the opposite. They focus on the benefits and they ignore the costs. So to be fair, in some ways it's easy to forget just how fortunate we are to have fossil fuels. They're provided to us on a daily basis through the invisible miracle of the market, which sees them provided in seemingly infinite amounts, often, although not always, at relatively little cost. So if John Bear's concerns prove founded, America may soon get a rather rude reminder this summer about the importance of fossil fuels. As Bear told the journal, as we move forward, we need to know that when you put up a solar panel or a wind turbine, it's not the same as a thermal resource. John Miltimore says this is good advice, so let's hope the right people hear it. That's a tough one. You know, the idea that uh, there, there is, I, I think it's an engineered energy shortage. I think that uh, you saw from the very moment, especially that Joe Biden entered office, he went right to work hamstringing the energy industry. And that's not to say that, you know, everything, in, you know, oil and gas related has been shut down. I mean, Biden himself will brag about, well, we've issued more leases on, uh, you know, on uh, federal lands, more oil and gas leases than any any other administration. Okay, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But there, there certainly appears to be some official policies at work keeping our uh, supply of gasoline and diesel particularly low and contributing to ever-climbing prices. Again, I don't, want to, I don't want to sound alarmist when I say this, but the more the cost of diesel goes up, the more the cost of everything goes up. 
because the economy runs on diesel, meaning that's what powers the ships, that's what powers the trains, that's what powers the trucks that get all of those products in commerce from wherever they're manufactured or gets the raw materials from which they're manufactured, you know, to a place where they can be created and then to us. So I don't know. I don't know if this is just opportunism writ large, you know, when when the uh, administration says, well, this is a prime opportunity now that gas is approaching, you know, five bucks a gallon and diesel is well over five dollars a gallon, a gallon, maybe much more depending on where you live. This is the perfect opportunity for Americans to transition into electric vehicles. And don't get me wrong, if you want to transition into an electric vehicle, if that's if that's what floats your boat, I say more power to you. But I just can't shake the feeling that uh, a lot of the uh, pressure that people are feeling, well, we better get into an EV right away, stems from this manipulation of our existing energy supplies or restriction, restricting artificially our access to these energy supplies in hopes of, you know, getting us into a more environmentally friendly state of mind. It's coercive. That's the only way that I can see it. And the worst part is, I think it makes us actually more dependent. You know, maybe I've spent too many hours talking with Eric Peters, but he's kind of soured me on the idea that, oh yeah, the electric vehicle, that's a that's the panacea that we're looking for. It's such clean energy. Yeah, but uh, what about when a hurricane comes through or a tornado or something and the power is off for several days? Is that going to work out okay when I can't charge my electric car? Again, there's no perfect answers, but... I think sometimes we create consequences that we really didn't intend just because we leap before we look. This is The Brian Hyde Show.